Welcome to All Thought is Black Thought. I'm G. And I'm O. So, right. how you doing, brother? I'm good, bro. Good, man. How, how you doing? How you holding in there? Man, uh, it's hard. It's hard to say that I'm good. I'm functional. But the world is so crazy and seeing things happening, it just feels like we're headed for a very, very disastrous time in our life experience. Uh, you know, part, part of the problem is, is that for us as black people, the violence that we experience at the hand of the state and the violence that we experience in our community that's been engineered by the state would inevitably lead to uh, a tipping point. And we, we're at that tipping point where it's really obvious it's become unbearable to continue to have the status quo go as it is. But then uh, you have a political leadership in the most powerful office in the world that wants to exasperate that situation for his own political interest. And that's what makes it, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say that it's, that makes it uh, so much more of a crucial moment mm -hmm. because, because he's pushing for a level of violence that black people in the U.S. would only experience either in the prison system or what we experienced uh, during the nadir, that period uh, at the uh, early part of the 20th century where there was just uh, a, lynch a lynching a day for uh, black people. Yeah. We're, we're sort of approaching that moment again. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, given that it's August mm -hmm. and part and, you know, for you and I, Black August is important. Uh, yeah. Thinking about that experience in the prison as being one of the spaces where uh, Black people have continually experienced a level of violence that uh, is much more intense than any place we experience in the free world, except perhaps in places like Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, North Richmond, uh, parts of East Oakland at certain periods. You know, there was years in Oakland. Uh, I remember around 2002, they put every face of someone that had been murdered on the uh, Oakland Tribune's front page. And I think it took like several pages. There was hundreds of people that had been killed. So, you know, we live under intense states of violence. But this is different. It's, you know, there's a racial motivation to it. And I just don't believe that we're ready for that. George Jackson being sort of the reason that there's the concept of Black August. George Jackson being a uh, political prisoner from the 1970s. And his brother Jonathan being significant figures in the struggle for Black liberation. We have an example of someone who... Uh, learn to organize in the most intensely violent situation you can imagine and who realized that 
the injustice that he was experiencing was entirely based on his skin color and his position in society and articulated it in a way that could be understood clearly and resonated uh, with people throughout the world. So the ideas that George Jackson brought forward, like you say, has a great deal to teach us about how to uh, cope in, in what seems to be coming in a time that seems to be coming and approaching yeah. rapidly. Given that there's been, uh, just in the last few months, if you count the murder of the person in August, in, in Austin, uh, Texas, and then the, uh, and I'm not talking about police murders, I'm talking about this sort of intramural violence between these white protesters, you know, the, right. the white people protesting for Black Lives Matters, and the, uh, the white people protesting in support of the police have been taking this, escalating this to a whole nother level, which yeah. I think, uh, which I think black people haven't done because they, to a certain extent, know that what they would unleash if they start, uh, if this happens, not that we shouldn't be prepared for it, but I think black people are more reluctant to uh, do some of the things that you'll see white people do. Uh, in these situations. We have in our DNA the experience of unleash white rage and what that means. It's in our collective memory. Yeah. 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 There's nothing romantic about it. And what it does to the community ties, the way that it severs ties and creates distrust mm -hmm. amongst people. That's yeah. another thing that makes George Jackson uh, so important to me is that despite the fact that he was in a you know, one of the most notorious prison systems in the U.S. He was at San Quentin Prison uh, and Soledad Prison. Amongst those prisoners, people like W.L. Nolan and George Jackson, uh, James Carr, uh, to name a few of the prisoners, they were able to organize other prisoners uh, politically, mm -hmm. despite the uh, inherent distrust that was created within the prison system. Mm -hmm. So they're, to me, they're really important figures to look at because yeah. it, it's clear to me that uh, amongst black people, we need to create tighter bonds among, amongst ourselves. We need to uh, enhance our sense of community. Uh, I mean, at a theoretical level, I understand why it's not that way, uh, why it's difficult to talk about the black community because at a theoretical level, all the things that prevents us from really being a community. But in a practical sense, we have to have a way that we, we are connected to one another, that we show our concern for one another and sort of engage in what can only be called a revolutionary love for, for one another. So let's talk about who this, uh, who this brother George Jackson was. What made him... Uh, famous what he wrote about in Soledad Brother and his personal history was I think he was he got convicted of I believe it was a $25 gas station robbery uh, there was no one harmed and he I think was actually not the one that actually did the robbery but he was in the car with the people that did it mm. and, and that ended up with him being uh, given an indeterminate sentence, which meant he 
there was never a point when they said he would definitely be out of prison by a certain date. And in that process, you know, he experienced the horrors of prison. Uh, he engaged in, uh, you know, the horrors of prison in terms of what a criminal mentality would lead one to do. And eventually, uh, through people like W.L. Nolan, who introduced him to African-American history and African history, and then his readings of people like Marx and uh, more revolutionary politics that focused on class, he became a really sort of symbol of uh, Black liberation movement of the 1970s. And he practiced it behind the prison wall, which is really a feat in itself, given how repressive the, the prison system is and the violence that's a normal part of the prison and the things that he saw in the prison that would have been debilitating for a lot of people. Yeah, he was recognized as one of the advocates for prisoners' rights. He's also connected, you know, in a lot of people's minds to the uh, origination of the prison abolition movement. Uh, he And he was, you know, uh, sort of uh, one of the people that founded the Black Gorilla family uh, back in the day. So, yeah, he... And they and part of what he advocated for, and what he expressed was the inhumane treatment that he experienced as a black prisoner within the California prison system. Mm-hmm. And and then you can there's other books around that sort of detail uh, and fill out that part of it. I think there's the uh, that book is not available now, but the book by I believe it was Ming Yi, Melancholy History of Soledad Prison gives great detail about what black prisoners were experiencing uh, within the California prison system, the sort of violence that they experienced, and the types of punishment that harken back to chattel slavery that they experienced in the California prison system. And there was, you know, so there was a, he became important in terms of a call for reforms to the uh, treatment of prisoners within the California prison system. Even though he he wasn't a prison reformist, he was a prison abolitionist. But his writings his writings were important in terms of uh, leading to the system reforming uh, some of its uh, more notorious practices and uh, more demeaning practices. Prison abolitionists would that be like critical resistance? Right, people that like uh, Angela Davis, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Uh, those organizations that that they helped uh, found and participate in uh, were focused on the idea that the prison should be abolished, that the, you know, the idea of imprisonment goes beyond uh, the basic concept of punishment and punishment meaning to incapacitate, limit one's ability to move. But there's an additional layer prison system that goes beyond uh, incapacitation. It's punishment in addition to the punishment that's attributed to law. 
so the way that the prison system works is to, you know, the at certain points in the U.S. prison system, there was just wholesale rape that went on, for instance. You, you can read uh, through the history of the prison that way that they, that prisoners were made to be uh, she-males is the way they would talk about it in terms of a, you know, it wasn't the idea of transgender because someone thought they or yeah. feels that that's not their biology, their biology does not represent their gender, but it was a way of forcing people through violence to be subjected to rape and violence and then forced into another uh, gender other than what they initially identified themselves with. So it's, you know, that's, you know, this is not to be against transgender people, but what happened in the prison system was not transgender. That was violence and rape. And that happened on a wholesale level. Uh, George Jackson and, uh, you know, like even the Angola three, uh, yeah. the three three black prisoners in Louisiana's prison system, part of what they were fighting against was that those sort of practices where the prison administration would turn uh, a blind eye towards sexual violence. And then in addition to that, there was the racial violence that goes on where uh, black prisoners were subjected to all sorts of brutality while white prisoners were protected. And then the prison administration intentionally aggravated racial tensions between black, white, uh, Latino prisoners as a way uh, and a means of control. So that was, all of these things were happening beyond the basic concept of incapacitating a person for a criminal violation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a reasonable person might say, well, you know, someone's, harming the community, they should be incapacitated, which I, you know, I might to a certain extent go along with that. But the problem is, was that's not what the prison does. And so George, George Jackson, uh, through his writings and through his organizing work, made it clear that the prison was doing much more than that. And it also reinforced a criminal mentality amongst the prisoners. I think there's a quote that he has about, uh, what he was trying to do in relation to uh, undoing that criminal mentality that really debilitated uh, black people and the ability of black people to fight for the liberation. So on page 16, yeah, he says, I met black guerrillas, George Big Jake Lewis and James Carr, W.L. Nolan, Bill Christmas, Tory Gibson, and many, many others. We attempted to transform the black criminal mentality into a black revolutionary mentality. As a result, each of us has been subjected to years of the most vicious reactionary violence by the state. Yeah, and that includes the killing of uh, prisoners on the yard. Uh, What really sort of brought George Jackson into uh, national awareness is that after W.L. Nolan uh, got killed on the yard by uh, what everyone considered was a racist guard who who manned the gun tower, uh, I believe this was at Soledad Prison, yeah. uh, uh, he got charged with uh, him and uh, 
two other prisoners got charged with retaliation on behalf of W.L. Nolan. And that's when uh, George Jackson caught, uh, came to Nashville attention. So when he talks about sort of reactionary violence, there's a long history of racial violence by law enforcement in California. There's a book by, I think the person's name is Josh Sides that writes about uh, Oakland policing and the way that the city of Oakland would go to southern towns to recruit uh, white police officers. Uh, you know, Oakland had a large black population, but they would rec intentionally recruit white pol police officers from southern towns to police a uh, largely black community in Oakland. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't the same sort of practices going on within the California prison system as well. So when he talks about reactionary violence, that's the sort of reactionaries that he's referring to. Even now, uh, in the on the prison yards of California, if there's a fight, uh, they'll tell the prisoners to hit the ground. But there's always uh, guards on the tower that have a, a large caliber weapons. Uh, lots of times it's a 30-30 uh, rifle. Uh, I don't know, you know, it might be scoped and so forth now. But they'll shoot a prisoner, they'll shoot prisoners involved in fighting. And then, you know, sometimes like at Corcoran Prison uh, back in the uh, uh, 1990s, they would create situations, what they call gladiator fights. And, you know, like, for instance, have the uh, black prisoner against a couple of uh, southern Mexican prisoners who are, uh, you know, the southern Mexicans and blacks are enemies within the, within the California prison system. And they, they would set it up where those two people would be on the recreational yard or those two groups would be on the yard and those sworn enemies, once they got in contact, they'd have, they would attempt to kill each other and they would set it up so that those prisoners would end up, they'd take bets on it. Uh, and then at a certain point, you know, they, there was a case that came up in Corcoran where one prisoner was killed because they had set up what they call gladiator fights. So the, and that happened in the 1990s back in, George Jackson's time, uh, there was very little information that got out about all the things that went on within the uh, California prison system. So part of the reason why this whole thing, why, why we even got information like that about, uh, you know, uh, gladiator fights uh, is probably because there are there have been movements uh, which have spawned groups and you know uh, you know some of their own researchers and intellectuals and stuff like that people writing about them journalists and everything like that you know doing documentaries and stuff uh, that probably was brought to awareness by this very book like soul dead brother yeah he sparked he sparked what's been considered the uh, prison abolition movement the writings of George Jackson. Uh, he was so influential that uh, after he was assassinated, there was the famous riot at the Attica State Prison in New York, 
which is well known as one of the most bloody, bloody prison riots in uh, recent U.S. history. I don't, I, I don't, I can't off the top of my head say how many people were killed, but I believe it was hundreds of prisoners and there were a number of guards that yeah. got killed. Uh, and basically the prisoners were, were protesting for, uh, against the inhumane conditions that they were experiencing. There's plenty of literature out there that uh, goes into what these prisoners were demanding. I was, I can't think of the name of the book off the top of my head right now, but uh, I was recently reading about uh, really what the circumstances were at Attica prison at the time that that riot broke out. But there, the initial protests uh, started after George Jackson got killed and it went, you know, and the news got out and prisoners across the country respected him because he had, uh, been one of the most prominent voices protesting the ways that prisoners were being abused. Wow. So from across the country, from, from, um, so, uh, he was coast at, to coast. Yeah. Prisons. And he was in prisons and George Jackson was at prisons in California, but the Attica rebellion is in upstate, uh, New York. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Man. So what he was saying was resonating and he was exposing all of these various types of abuses that uh, prisoners were going through. And if you think about how many times people have been exonerated for uh, death sentences in recent years because of corrupt police practices, just imagine what it must have been like back then if you're a young black person, you know, walking through the streets of Oakland or San Francisco or certain parts of New York or uh, Chicago, you could just get picked up for anything or, you know, get convicted of some minor crime, $25 robbery when no one, where no one was hurt and you're spending the rest of your life in prison. That's what people were going through. And that's what uh, sort of bred that prison abolition movement. And so you did a crime for $25 and then you have to be subjected to uh, all sorts of assassination attempts. If you speak up for yourself, the guards beat you. And if you speak up too much, they literally kill you, you know, and they, and they're using you for their entertainment, you know, through fighting and who knows what sort of uh, sexual misconduct that went on in terms of the guards behavior, because we know for a fact what happens, uh, with female prisoners that are guarded, you know, that end up pregnant and all sorts of uh, sexual misconduct goes on within the, uh, within women's prisons. But there's nothing saying that there wasn't all sorts of sexual abuses going on amongst men prisons, you know, um, uh, in a men's prison on the part of the guards. So, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, all sorts of skullduggery that George Jackson and other prisoners were complaining about, and not just complaining, but organizing themselves uh, to defend themselves against the abuse and fighting, physically fighting back against their abusers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, like uh, like you were mentioning uh, women who were abused, uh, like the case of uh, Joanne Little in uh, North Carolina. She was locked up. You know, white guards were so 
accustomed to just raping the black female prisoners uh, that uh, one night on August, it was actually in August, uh, so it's a Black August thing too. On August 27, 1974, she uh, killed the guard who was trying to rape her. He, and she, she was able to get acquitted, uh, which uh, was kind of a, you know, nothing short of a, nothing short of a miracle in a, in a lot of ways, but it took a whole lot of public attention. Uh, that was, uh, you know, she was acquitted. She, the, the event, the, the incident happened in 1974, August 27, 1974, and she was acquitted on August 15, 1975. So all of that is after Attica and after uh, George Jackson with the prison, uh, you know, prison abolition movement or kind of the, you know, the rights for prison, advocating for the right. rights of prison. Yeah, um, he brought attention to it. Yeah, the fact that he had previously brought attention to uh, the plight of prisons in California probably made it more possible for her uh, situation to, to get any sort of publicity and to really get paid attention to. And even right now, we really have no idea what prisons experience. You know, we only get a little inkling of the things that they experience because there are so many ways that uh, they're not allowed to uh, express themselves and say what the actual conditions are that they're experiencing. I mean, from what we do know and what uh, researchers even tell us is a lot of what goes on in the prison is just uh, psychological warfare. I mean, there are documentaries out there about what it, what happens to a person, for instance, that's put into solitary confinement 23 hours a day, seven days a week, where you sit in a room under fluorescent lights all that time and how that deteriorates your mind. You know, in addition to uh, whatever sort of violence goes on within the prison system. Or even, you know, before you get to the prison at the jails, what was the young man saying that uh, was at Rikers all that time and experienced so much abuse that he ended up committing suicide by the time he uh, was exonerated and let out of Rikers? Uh, yeah, Khalif Browder. Yes. I mean, he experienced so much trauma that uh, he was, it made him suicidal you know so yeah there's a there's a lot of information out here about what the prison actually does but all of this all of this uh can be points back to the organizing and fighting that george jackson and his comrades did back back at that time yeah it did yeah it did spark from from that moment and uh in and recent history, yeah. and and to be talking not just about prison reform, but the abolition of prisons, uh, you know, uh, in in the U.S. It's probably it had been discussed in other other countries, but I, I wonder if uh, how much it had really been talked about before that moment in the U.S. Right. Yeah. You know. uh, it. It. I don't. Yeah. I. I sort of consider myself a prison scholar, and I haven't read any literature about the abolition of prison. Uh, before George Jackson, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was, you know, there was movements to abolish the chain gang and they did eliminate chain gangs to a certain extent, right. you know, and then, they, and then, you know, there was a movement, uh, uh, I guess, uh, during the Bush one administration, uh, when they wanted to reinstate chain gangs, but, uh, yeah, but, but, 
there was never anything that went as far as to uh, talk about the abolition of prison. But the, you know, the fact that George Jackson tied prison to slavery and showed the parallels between slavery and the prison system. And then in more recent years, all of the scholarship that shows sort of the transition from slavery to mass incarceration done by various scholars like Wakant, all of the literature on uh, convict leasing systems and the various ways that that sort of filled in after the abolition of slavery. Uh, And right up to this moment where you have films like uh, the 13th by... uh, Yes, yes, thank you. And and then like you mentioned, uh, the new Jim Crow and you know, when you look at the mainstream media, uh, like if you're watching CNN or reading the New York Times or uh, watching MSNBC, it's just a regular sort of normalized concept to talk about the idea of mass incarceration. And even Trump uses it as a wedge by, you know, sort of highlighting the injustice that's been done to uh, black prisoners and then uh, you know, giving a pardon or, yeah. or, you know, getting people out of prison that were serving uh, extreme sentences for things that are actually legal. So it's a way that it's politicized on both sides, right? Yeah. I mean, the, but George Jackson was, you know, he, they what they're talking about in terms of the mainstream discourse around mass incarceration is much different than the concept of abolishing the prison system because it is basically a new form of slavery. Basically, of necessity, it would have to be a revolutionary politics. Yes. To call for the abolition of prison in a society so devoted to the prison as its go-to and in some ways its foundation yeah, because, I mean, right now people are getting, you know, on the right or and on the left, like Biden and Harris or Trump and Pence are all sort of responding to just the concept of defunding the police. I yes. think I heard somebody, I think I, I forget, but it was in the billions that the New York Police Department gets funded. Yeah. And even it's after 11, they took away 11 billion, 11 billion dollars for one year. Yeah. And then they took away some of those billions, but they still had billions left. Same thing for the Los Angeles Police Department. So just the idea that they're getting so agitated or unwilling to even talk about defunding police, man, at the base of everything is a prison. You know, it is it is the loci of punishment. And it's also been sort of the main primary location where white supremacy does its most violent work in American society. I mean, it literally comes down to a place where white supremacy not only protects white prisoners, but allows white supremacy to work out its anger on the bodies of the prisoners. Mm. And not just on their psychology, but on their physical bodies in terms of 
uh, various punishment methods that the guards uh, engage in, the ways that the prison itself as an institution punishes, and it does it to the extreme disproportion of Black representation behind the wall of the prison. It's clearly that meant to target and punish Black people through all the, it's the end point of the criminal justice system. You know, they talk about the, the school to prison pipeline. So you hear these stories of kindergartners being handcuffed and escorted off campus by the police. That's the, that's the path that they're putting those children on where the, it's almost like the final stop where you end up disappeared forever in a lot of cases where right. you never come out again or you literally get killed within that, within that physical setting, let alone what it does to uh, people psychologically and emotionally, and yes. let alone the role that the prison does to the community. I mean, the fact that it can, you know, uh, the police can co coerce people into false statements with the threat of the prison because we all, if you're a black person, you can't live in America without the thought of imprisonment, imprisonment being on your mind. Even if you're not doing anything wrong, you know too many stories of people who have been falsely convicted because someone said they did something. Or even some, some white woman dreamed that a black man raped her and it turns out it was completely a fantasy but he spent, he may have spent 30 years in prison based on her fantastical dream, you know? And if you, you know, even if he comes out exonerated those 30 years that he spent, he experienced all of the violence that goes on in prison, all of the rape, all of the murders. Some prisons are so notorious that, you know, I've heard prisons talk about some prisons in various States where there would be, uh, you know, two or three stabbings a day, wow. you know, um, imagine, you know, within your neighborhood that two or three people were getting stabbed every day. You'd yeah. be scared to death to move. Right. And so it has, you know, and yet we see people come out of that environment and they manage to push on through. So, you know, we, but, but at some level as a black person, you always have to be in the back of your mind understanding that this is what awaits you if somebody, uh, you know, you have the wrong interaction with someone. And especially if you have the wrong interaction with the police. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it could, you could end up in prison because you didn't like the way that a clerk in the store talks to you and you respond back to them with that same attitude. And next thing you know, the police are there. I had a friend when I was going to Berkeley, uh, there used to be a bookstore across the street from the campus uh, called uh, Ned's Bookstore. And he got arrested because he got an argument with the clerk and they charged him with terroristic threats. Wow. Based, based on an argument. Wow. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so. And he was a student at Berkeley, right? So you, you, never, you never are really outside of the realm of the prison. And I think that the prison functions in our imagination in the ways that it does because they want it to function that way. 
the state has an interest in black people being psychologically policed and knowing that they're really not free by keeping the prison uh, functioning and operating in the way that it does. And you can look around and you know, no matter what status you hit in society, that it's always there for you. Look at Bill Cosby. You know, sure. it's only you know it's only in recent years that someone as rich as Bill Cosby ended up in prison. I mean, mm-hmm. the, what's what's Harvey Harvey Weinstein? I yeah. mean, he was he was a notorious rapist, and it took a lot for him to get there, right? <laughs> but uh, but Cosby was there before him. You know, <laughs> and it's it's very very unusual that someone in that status in American society ends up in prison. Even though, look at Jeffrey Epstein; he pretty much got off over and over again. So, yep. you yep. know, <laughs> I hear <a> train of coming. <laughs> yeah, no, right. back in back in Folsom Prison. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <since yeah>. Like, <laughs> manic, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah. Jeffrey Epstein. And, yeah, yeah, yeah but look at Jeffrey Epstein. You know that he he did all that, and it wasn't until like you know all of the things that he did that he ends up in prison. So the prison. Yeah is sort of the most black space in the United States. Mm-hmm. Jared uh, Sexton, who, uh, of course, we borrowed a name for this show from uh, his work, you know, uh, I mm-hmm. think to paraphrase him, you can't talk about crime and punishment in the same discourse. You, you can talk about crime, you know, and all the different types of crime that people do, you know, uh, you know, from, you know, of, of all kinds, you know, big, small, you know, white collar or whatever, you know, uh, right. and you can talk uh, separately about punishment. That is who right. is getting the most time, who is getting, yeah. who signifies in the public imagination, uh, the one who always did it, the one who deserves to be punished, you know, yeah. you, you can talk about them separately, but you cannot talk about them together because they're not related. Exactly. I mean, look at look at these uh, white collar criminals that get convicted for uh, millions and billions of dollars that they rip off. Like only one, Bernie Madoff, and he was extraordinarily, you know, criminal, right? But mm-hmm. I mean, there was there's people like uh, what was his name, Michael Milken, all these various mm-hmm. walls people that ripped off for millions and millions of dollars and there's they're still kidding. yeah yes there's yeah he crashed the whole savings and loan industry from mm-hmm. his right mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but you have a black person that uh sends their child to the wrong school district to improve their chances in life and they end up in prison right. you know or, or right. you have someone that stole i think i saw uh yeah, I think it was on Democracy Now! maybe uh, a year or so ago where a woman had stole a $50 purse and she ended up in prison for the rest of her life. Wow. You know? Yeah. You know, very, very minor property crimes. Mm-hmm. And yet we end up in prison forever. But yet these people that rip off millions of people, uh, you know, built people out of their homes and everything, they may do 
six months, and that's considered a lot. And then when it's all over, they're still as rich as they ever were and yeah. find new ways to get more rich. You know, they they sort of don't lose their status in the society. Yeah. I mean, look at Roger Stone. You know, he Trump, Trump pardons him. I think before he even goes to jail or whatever the whatever the legal mechanism was that he used, he he lied to Congress and everything. He didn't even go. He didn't spend any time in jail. Or if he did, it was only you know it was a relatively short amount of time. So it was mm-hmm. r- ridiculous. The whole thing is right. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's much. It's much more than punishment. It's obvious. That it's not about punishment. It's about mm-hmm. who who the person is that they. Uh, that they're uh, banishing, you know. That's right. That's right. It's really a form of banishment. It's mm-hmm. meant to render black people invisible. And when you think about uh, what it does to a black community in terms of siphoning off all the people that, you know, are sort of the ideal American, the risk takers, right? I mean, that's what they, they glorify that in American society. Yeah. And, you know, those people that, aren't famous athletes that, uh, that, you know, don't have other avenues. They're the risk takers. So they engaged in something that might've been criminal and they turn around and turn it into a legitimate, uh, business practice, no different than, uh, than the people that started Las Vegas or something, you know, <laughs> so, right. but, right. but they didn't get banished, you know, they, they have criminal enterprises that, started back in uh, 1885 or something and continue on to today, you know? So, right. right. Yeah, and when they get caught, they don't end up in there forever. So the prison uh, is, a, and is a kind of a, it's almost like a black institution in some ways, like that, that uh, because of the, how America racializes um, captivity. Uh, it makes prison a space that is disproportionately black to the point where it comes up when it comes on TV, you know, uh, or in the movies, it it looks perfectly normal for there to be black women in prison. But mm-hmm. one white woman is the basis of a whole entire multi-season TV show, Orange is the New Black, you know, like, and even though it, it does actually go into, you know, it, it does actually have some stuff about it that it, some moments we were trying right. to say something, you know, that right. that is still the premise of the show is still basically that it's surprising that a white suburbanish type, you know, woman uh, would go to prison, and it's completely unsurprising that most of the women that she's around in there are black women. Right. That's all. You're right. That is a premise. Is that here's this college educated, uh, middle class white woman attractive white woman ends up locked up in prison away from her middle-class existence with fashion and conveniences and all the foods that she enjoys and you know sort of uh like when you watch that show a, a lot of it is about her class awkwardness around poor people and black people yes you know, that's the whole basis of that initial part, at least for the first couple seasons, I think, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah, that is a premise and it, it's sort of a true premise. 
you know, because right. that's who, that's not who's going to prison. Yeah, you 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 pick case after case of uh, people who did the exact same crime as a another black woman, or for instance, nineteen sixties and seventies radicals who would end up doing, you know, a year for something that we know other radical people are doing life and all they had to do was apologize and say they were sorry and then they do a year and then they're back to their suburban life, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's obvious that uh who the prison is meant for. It's right. meant for it's meant for a certain class of white people and and but it's mostly it starts off especially pre nineteen eighties, it's really uh meant for black people. Black and Latino people, you know, uh, California California prison system probably has more uh, Mexican prisoners than black prisoners, but that you know those are the main demographics with a small portion of white prisoners. They're n- they're not they're not yeah primarily it's not uh, middle class yeah. white kids getting locked up until maybe the war on drugs and then. You know, uh, they started getting uh, more white prisoners for cocaine and and marijuana before marijuana was legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so then, uh, okay. One of the things I wanted to ask you about with George Jackson is what. Um, what are some of the signs, like when we when we take it from the abstract, from the from the larger structural context of the prison and history and his his place in you know spurring basically a new movement that's still that's still taking shape, right? You know, um, what happens when we focus in on his life? You know, because this uh, is both the you know Soul Dead Brother uh, is. You know, collection of his letters, which tells the story of his life, you know, in a certain standpoint, he's writing to someone else, you know, this is something he wants to say to other people. And these are people uh, who he knows, he's at various stages of a relationship in terms of his level of acquaintance with him, with, with, with them, you know, their level of acquaintance with him. So he's having to recount some of his life story, and things like that. And, and, uh, but also, I think, you know, for extended periods, the collection of his letters to his parents uh yeah really really powerfully uh telling you know a story about you know the construction of him as a subject you know and how it was necessary that he differentiate himself from how other black men like his father were constructed right yeah, I mean, really, that's like a, sort of a metaphor for native alienation. If you ask me, part of it's almost like he needs to self-alienate in order to have some sort of a psychic survival because he describes his father as being a broken man and seeing the way that his father uh, was submitting to the ongoing oppression and the killing of his spirit. You know, it's a, uh, you know, there's a, sort of a metaphysical death that's going on that's that he could observe as a as a young man that he wasn't willing to sign up for and then there was a sort of a 
at that stage of his relationship with his mother, there was a push from his mother for him to conform and sort of be obedient that he was unwilling to do as well. You know, and, and uh, you really, you know, there's, I think that's what really moved me about it uh, when I first read Soledad Brother, because I didn't read it until I was well into my 30s. You know, I, I was, uh, I grew up in a place where, in an environment where I didn't even hear about all the things that was going on in California, even though uh, I was like 13 years old at the time. If I had been living in Oakland, I'm sure I would have known who George Jackson was and all of that, right? If I had been in the, even in Sacramento or something, but living in Nevada, uh, there's no way that I was even learning about that. So I read all these, all of uh, Soledad Brother the first time I was introduced to it. It just moved me so much because there was so much of what he was saying that resonated with me, the ways that, uh, you know, you had to conform in order to uh, make a living. And when you conformed, it meant you were going along with uh, people making racial jokes to your face. And you had to just sort of, if you wanted to keep your job, just be quiet and take it, you know, or, or you being in a, I remember being in a training setting for as a carpenter's apprentice and somebody called me a nigger and, you know, I didn't go along with it. You know, I just, I wasn't going to go along with it, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it, you know, it costs you if you stand up for yourself in those situations. So then you're not, you know, in a small town like Reno at that time, you might not be working anymore because you're right. not going to tolerate people disrespecting you in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and then there would be those sort of conservative voices that uh, were saying things like his mother said about him just having to sort of submit that you just can't do if you respect yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, and then on the other hand, I don't think I saw my father that way. My father really didn't submit, but I, I've see, I would see other people that would just be smiling and going along with some bullshit that I could never imagine myself saying yes to. But to be in their presence, it would be humiliating for me and them, you know? So there's all those things came out and came up for me when I first read Soledad Brother. And in, in addition to just being criminalized, you know, because you're black, you're criminalized, you get accused of something that you don't even know what it, you know, as a, as a young child in elementary school, you, you're getting accused of being a sexual menace when you don't even know, you don't even know what it is to be sexual, you know, not in that that sort of a overt way, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah, it was just so much of it that just resonated in the and that was so important for me as a black person and particularly as a black man to hear that someone articulated something that I knew and had experienced. So, and I guess I'm answering your question, I hope, but yeah, there's a way that what George Jackson was saying about his life uh, stood in for so many black people's experiences. Yeah. 
Yeah. An experience of being like a, a radically different generational outlook than your parents' generation had. Yes, absolutely. Yep. As a function of a, of a different type of movement taking hold, like, um, you know, in, in, in many ways, I mean, that uh, previous uh, movements, you know, uh, before the Black Power movement, you know, I mean, that, you know, I, I shouldn't speak like in a way that generalizes about, you know, move, Black movements before that time too much, but, uh, but I think there was something unique that came together it had maybe existed in separate pockets, you know, previous to that time. So especially in the rural South where black people were concentrated, you know, but, but when the, at the time when the Black Panther, you know, party and Ram and, uh, you know, several of these other groups are, you know, are, are uh, doing their thing, you know, there's something happening that hadn't necessarily happened before in black history in, you know, in the Americas in terms of, a galvanizing black consciousness, right? That, you know that that couldn't. That it, there's no way that it wouldn't have radically separated that generation from the previous generations. Absolutely, and I mean it's even like the. Uh, well, I mean, I would attribute that a lot to Malcolm X and his articulation of uh, black liberation that resonated with the generation after he is, all those people that were in the Black Panther Party, all those people that had a different vision than Martin Luther King's articulation, and particularly resonated with people that came from a place that Malcolm had been, which was the penitentiary system. And so George Jackson is a further and a more uh, expressed and you know, fully articulated representation of the physical abuse that Malcolm didn't necessarily uh, go into, you know, because to a certain degree, Malcolm was very much on an absolute uh, political plane of organizing people to fight against, you know, the racist apparatus of the U.S. state, but but not so much specifically focused on the pocket of the prison. And what George Jackson does is bring uh, the focus to, in my mind, the way that the state is able to impress its power upon black people without outright murder. And that would be through prison, right? If, if you would think of the most powerful element to contain black people in modern U.S. history, you'd have to say it was the prison system, mm-hmm. you know, outside of, you know, because that that right there aids in controlling our response to everything else. Yes. Because the, that it sits there as an imposing threat of you get too far out of pocket, the police arrive, and then once the police charge you, the chances of you being convicted are very high. And this is what awaits you if you get too far out of pocket. So by George Jackson sort of making the foci be the prison and arguing for the abolition of the prison, it's uh, even more important and crucial and critical point of attack if you're talking about black liberation. Because that liberation right there, if prisoners are liberated, 
what does it say for everyone else in the society? Yes. So. It would have to be a radically different kind of society. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. So George Jackson is really important in that sense that it's a very, very important thing to bring attention to the mechanism that makes everybody else uh, stay in their place. You know, the, the other alternative that the state would have would be to engage in just widespread homicidal style violence. And if the U.S. is to maintain its sort of leadership status in the world, it can't be seen as behaving like a banana republic. Like we talked about earlier about Nicaragua under the Somoza regime where they had uh, torture chambers and all of that sort of... Uh, a wide open secret, right? Uh, and everybody knew that's how that society functioned. The U.S. sort of functions under this uh, umbrella of legitimacy because it's not widely known all of the corrupt things that happens uh, through state power that George Jackson made it known. You know, as much as the ex exposure of the Cointel program Mm -hmm. uh, the other ways that the state apparatus works. It's funny how we're never too far removed as black people from the prison system. You know, um, I, I ended up, you know, having a, a close relative who was in the prison system, but, you know, but from my early years, there was something special about that. That was, that I knew was like, um, part of my story, in some ways connected to my story and my brother's story, you know, as black boys and black men, you know. Um, and, and I remember actually in, when I was 14, I was in some kind of a, some kind of after school program that was supposed to help people prepare for, you know, careers in the law. So it would introduce you to local law and for, you know, law, you know, different lawyers, different types of lawyers. And one time we were supposed to meet the, uh, the, the city attorney and they took us sort of tour of the jail, but actually wow. they, only, they, they only took, um, I was the only black kid in the group, the only, the only black male in the group. They, they took, at one point, they took the rest of the group into see the district attorney and they singled me out and said, we're gonna take you on a special tour. And they took wow. me through the jail, the only black boy in that group, right? Um, and just walking through there, I, I already knew they were trying these these prison guards. They were, uh, they were jail, you know, they were jail guards. They were sheriffs, you know, were trying to intimidate me. And I was already kind of like recognizing that somehow at the age of, of, of fourteen, you know. Right. And then when I right. went through the went through the, the jail, I saw dudes who I had been in school with, that played on the football team with, and stuff wow. like that. Wow. You know, so it was like. Um, you know, and actually when we got done with that tour, the, the sheriffs were like, so, you know, uh, what did you think, what you saw? And, I, you know, are, are you going to, are you going to not do bad so that you won't go there? You know, stuff like that. And I was like, I mean, they locked up Martin Luther King and, you know, I, what was he saying? You know, he, he wasn't right. doing nothing, nothing wrong. You right. know, like, they're like, well, Martin Luther King was different. I was like, how? You know, Martin Luther King wasn't necessarily different. It's, it's criminal yeah. to be to, you know, it's criminal to do something for black people's civil rights, I might have said, or something like that, you know, and they, right. they were, you know, they were like, okay, but just so you know, we always have a place here for you. 
just what I was saying earlier. They literally were doing what I was saying earlier. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, that was obviously meant to keep you contained in terms Absolutely. of, you know, you this is your place, stay in your place, don't deviate because we got this for you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and to see that as something that, is a whole lens that you could have on the world, you know, uh, from the underside. Right. To, um, you know, or from underneath it, you know, to, to really be able to see what's, what's really going on, what, uh, what the real, you know, mechanisms are that are at work. And, and I think George Jackson's, uh, you know, soul dad brother really testifies to that, you know, in, in so many ways, because it connects, you know, these massive, uh, political theory, you know, structural perspectives like Marxism and, um, you know, that, that sort of thing, you know, but also to weave that into his own life story of how, you know, he was supposed to be raised in a certain kind of way by, by his mom, but his dad wouldn't really stand up to his mom to make, make it so that he understood the things that he had come to learn since being in prison. You know, he, right. uh, he's reflecting on how, uh, uh, you know, that has to do with kind of how his father had already been disciplined at a, you know, at an early age, you know, and had been through a lot of trauma and had, had you know, you know, different types of things that, that made him, made him realize that basically beat him into submission. Yeah. Disciplined by the system. And so yes. that then his, his, uh, mother's earlier sort of because because she does change but her sort of earlier conservative uh respectability politics doesn't get challenged because her husband has already been beat by the system he's sort of fallen in line and stayed in place you know she 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 eventually you know sort of sees what he's telling her but he had george has to go through the struggle of educating her about what it is that she's not seeing or that she's not allowing herself to see, you know, so, and which is, you know, which is really symbolic of what's, what happens with uh, black people. I mean, all this time, you know, he wrote that and was saying these things back in the 1970s. And yet it's right up to this day, there's this politics of respectability where middle-class black people don't really want to have anything to do with uh, a lot of black people who have the prison experience, even though the prison experience is so widespread now, it's damn near impossible to have, uh, you know, to avoid or to know a black person, you know, under a certain age that doesn't have some sort of a either direct experience with the system or have a very close relative that has been through the system, which makes it even more important to seeing how almost prophetic it was for George to be doing the work that he was doing because the prison system exploded from that point forward. You know, it, it became the primary mechanism for addressing black grievance in the United States. You know, you know, black people like you right now, I mean, that's what Trump is moving toward, right? It's, they're not going to address the police. Uh, Biden's uh, very, very reluctant to challenge the police. Anytime anybody says anything about the police, 
they also always have to have the qualifier that says, but their most offices are good. You know, it's a few bad apples. And yet you see all this stuff happening over and over again. So just the idea that uh, George Jackson was able to bring the focus to that system and the system ends up being what it is right now. And yet there's a conservative portion of the black community that's still sort of unwilling to, you know, accept their connection to people that have been through the prison system is really telling and really a dividing mechanism. Right, right, right. I think so many um, people, you know, the, the stories that were told, you know, uh, in the, after the, you know, prison movement sort of maybe uh, died down or wasn't being focused on as much or, you know, in the public discourse and things like that, you know, mm -hmm. the focus, it seems like it was on, you know, upward mobility, uh, black empowerment as kind of black capitalism, you know, um, the Cosby show as sort of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing, the dominant image, you know, in the, you know, sort of media, you know, the mainstream right. media of, uh, of black people that, uh, that we were sort of being encouraged to identify with. And that's happening at the same time as the prison industrial complex is just sucking black people out of the community. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, it goes from hundreds of thousands of people in jail, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, two or 300,000 prisoners in the nation to millions. Yeah. You know, even even as the crime rates are going down quite often. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it really has nothing to do with criminality to that extent. And then the majority of it isn't even about removing violence. Uh, activity from the street. They're taking people to prison for things like George Jackson did, you know, property crimes, minor property crimes. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was really, it was really uh, insightful that those people that began to organize around that, at that point, uh, during that, they realized that that was sort of the way that the state was moving in response to uh, ever-growing Black liberation movement, you know, the rise of the Black Panther Party, the breakaway from the uh, more respectable civil rights and towards a Black liberation agenda. That right there, the way that the U.S. state responded was with COINTELPRO, which engaged in assassinations and smear campaigns and all sorts of other uh, divisive methods that they use to overthrow governments in other countries. You know, COINTELPRO and Operation Chaos, where they use the U.S., you know, the CIA is supposed to be designated uh, for non-domestic activities, but they used it in the U.S. against the uh, Black Liberation Movements. And you know, and the student activists, you know, the anti-Vietnam activists and so forth. But the idea that, uh, that, uh, that to look at the prison as being important to all liberation struggles yeah. was, 
was really a, a really important insight that George Jackson had. And now, you know, you really, you really have to understand that every that the prison has just only served to destroy the possibility of black people making a way even legitimately in the u.s political economy so because there's there have been so many white people that have done so so much in terms of quote-unquote crime that black people end up in prison for life and white people come out and are rehabilitated after a couple of years that there's no doubt what the purpose of the prison is even before even on arrest the ways that i was working at a uh, for a research organization at one point uh when i was an undergraduate that uh some of the research i did was on the ways that uh once arrested the difference between black teenagers and latino teenagers but particularly black teenagers either being sent to a juvenile facility or being allowed to return home until their case was adjudicated. And overwhelmingly, the white kids got to go home, stayed under parental supervision, while the black kids immediately were put into a facility. So, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's the important focal point to understand the ways that, you know, the, the leg, quote-unquote legitimate legitimate part of the state attacks us and then once in the prison we see the uh you know the i don't want to say illegitimate that's not the term i'm looking for but the more sort of extra legal the clan type anti-black uh neo-nazi types uh attack black people at a physical level uh was literally engaging in stabbings, murders, assassinations on the part of the on the part of the guards and, and prison gangs. One of the other things that George Jackson was able to do was to uh, persuade people and organize across racial lines. You know, some of the people that participated. The thing that that the day that he was killed was after uh, they took over. I believe was a medical ward of uh, San Quentin prison. And there were some uh, members of uh, Lyme that fought on the side of George Jackson, you know, who are normally sworn enemies. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember the two individuals' names. and But because his politics, they believed in what he was saying politically. Mm -hmm. You know, he was or able to organize with those... Uh, with people who were supposed to be his his enemies, right. and then there there were white prisoners that talked about how much they respect him as well. So mm -hmm. he, he was an extraordinary individual in a system that is so uh, so notoriously racist and organized around racial hatred. I felt implicated in how he was talking about his father to some degree, because I thought of, you know, his father as just kind of, when I first read it, you know, I, you know, I think this was many, many years ago, I thought it sounded almost insolent to me for a child to be talking to his father in that way. But when I got into like the sort of how 
what he was saying had constructed his father, I was like, oh, well, that's, that's, you know, who I was taught to be like, you know? Right, um, right. And, so, and so, like, you know. Say, say more about how, it, say more about how his father was uh, constructed, just to give that a little more, make it more clear what you're saying. Oh, so you're gonna make me get into this, huh? <laughs> 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 well, actually, since you mentioned it on page 239. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we need. We need a little specificity here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he's uh, saying, you know, there are millions of Blacks of my father's generation now living. They are all products of a totally depressed environment. All of the males have lived all of their lives in a terrible quandary. None were able to grasp that a morbid economic deprivation an outrageous and enormous abrasion formed the basis of their character. My father developed his character, convention, convictions, his traits, his lifestyle out of a situation that began with his mother running out. She left him and his oldest brothers on the corner of one of the canyons in East St. Louis. They raised themselves in the streets, then on a farm in Louisiana, then in CCC camps. They had, uh, you know, he says no formal education, you know, alone in the most hostile jungle on earth, ruled over by the king of the beasts in the fields, uh, in, in the first throes of a bloody and protracted death, alone in the most savage moment of history without arms and burdened by a black face that he's been hiding ever since. You know, um, you wow. know that's, that's powerful, isn't it? I mean, it you talk about some powerful writing, man. That's just so vivid. And you're imagining this child going through all these things and the fact that you can't change your skin and your face, that's just who you are. Man, he just gets there, man. He really digs into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It says, uh, you know, he stayed with us. He worked 16 hours a day, after which he would eat, bathe, and sleep, period. He never owned more than two pairs of shoes in his life. And in the time I was living with him, never more than one suit, never took a drink, never went to a nightclub, expressed no feelings about such things, and never once reminded any one of us, or so it seemed, never expected any notice of the fact that he was giving to us all of the life, all of the life force and activity that the monster machine had left to him. The part that the machine seized, that death of the spirit visited upon him by a world that he never influenced, was mourned by us, and most certainly by me. But no one ever made a real effort to give him solace. How do you console a man who is unapproachable? And the, and the fact that there's, like he says, millions of us that are at that point, right? Right. And 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 on the other hand, at the time that he was in prison when there was hundreds of thousands, now it's went to millions. There are millions of 
black men suffering the same deprivations that he experienced. Yes. And, and it just says so much about the world, American society and what it means to be a black person in American society. But for that matter, around the world, you know, we're, our spirits aren't broken around the world, but we live, you know, black people live in a position throughout the world where we are, you know, uh, pretty much, if not under the that sort of a burden, there's a great deal of a burden on us all the time. But you're right, you know, that's the that's the what that's policing the mind, man. That's policing the spirit in a way that it can't be released. He was giving to us all of the life force and activity that the monster machine had left to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he's uh, you know reading reading his father as a person who was uh, constructed to be um, small, uh, even though he was you know also expected to be you know one who was doing the work. You know you know uh, I think as as a as one scholar says, making and moving things. You know things like that. You know. Yeah, shaped to be, you know, a certain kind of uh, good, loyal worker. And I think uh, in that sense, I think uh, George Jackson's perspective is really uh, prescient, prescient, as they say, you know, like, um, you know, uh, what you call it, prophetic, you know? Yeah. uh, He's seeing a reality that was coming to dominate Black people's lives because the, the we we were drawn we were pulled to the cities, you know, um, of the north of the west. You know, George Jackson born in Chicago. You know, uh, you know we were we were pushed to those cities um, by industrialization, and then shortly after that, deindustrialization happened. You know, uh, so. The, again, the reality between these two generations, there's just a chasm in between their realities. You know, uh, it, it, you know, it seems like his father was shaped to be a certain kind of black person for a kind of capitalism that is no longer going to exist by the time his son's generation, you know, comes uh, comes fully, you know, into its adulthood. You know. Yeah, and when you say born in Chicago, look at Chicago now. I mean, at a certain point, you know, there was all sorts of employment and all that. After that, there's the sort of the rise of the prison industrial complex. And now Chicago's sort of known for just the bloody violence that just constantly goes on there, which is really because there is uh, nothing available for black people to make a living off of in certain sectors of that community, you know, of those communities. They don't have an economic base. All the means to survive, you know, are almost non-existent, you know. And then you have people engaging in whatever they can to make a living and to eat. And then once you start doing that, you create a whole nother culture, just like the prison creates its own culture. He was, George Jackson was really sort of at the crossroads in so many ways in terms of what he experienced, uh, the generational shift that you that you're talking about now between his father, like 
you know, for those young people in a place like uh, Chicago that might be in their 20s, you would be a generation that had one experience, but then they would be a generation that's living through sort of the most bloody violence in recent history, you know? So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then what do we get? What do we get when we ask for and ask, uh, quote unquote, properly to have these things addressed? We just get more of it. We get more prisons. We get told that they're going to send the National Guard. Uh, We get more policing and we get more violent policing. But we get nothing that addresses our fundamental needs as humans. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's really sad, you know, it's sad and it's, and it makes me so angry, but I really uh, think it makes me also look at someone like George Jackson and try to think about ways that, and strategies that he writes about in order to keep himself ready for the struggle that he was facing, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're moving into a time that I think we're about to experience extraordinary struggle. Mm-hmm. that that uh, uh several generations have not had to deal with yes. and it's going it's going to require uh a lot more of people than they've had to uh since the 1970s you know mm-hmm. the i mean even though we're we have been through hard times we haven't been through the sort of times that i think are coming something similar to you know, black life in the uh, turn of the century and, you know, up through 1965, you know, this is going to be a a whole different thing. This reality of neo-slavery, of being reduced to a new form of slavery, you know, uh, which I do think is, you know, part of... uh, part of the arc of these, uh, these right-wing movements, if not their whole entire purpose, you know, it's at least part of their purpose, you know, is that the position of Black people be moved globally, you know, back towards something like slavery. And there are many Black people who have never really escaped from that, uh, that status, considering that slavery has still continued to exist on the African continent and been really essential in certain industries like the chocolate industry. You know, most of the chocolate bars that we eat will have some amount uh, of chocolate, if not most of the chocolate that's from, you know, places like Ivory Coast, you know, where child slavery in the chocolate industry is widely known to have practiced and not have any industry, you know, really industrial uh, regulation of that, that has happened, you know? Um, So I, I think, the, the reality of captivity in its in the new forms that it can take is something that I think is uh, is really uh, relevant to Black people globally. And George Jackson was seeing, you know, had a line of sight that was seeing that at the very kind of beginning moment when it's starting to happen. You know that there's something that that changes from his father's generation to his generation. Yeah, seeing a reality in a different in a fundamentally different way but it's still a reality that's going to affect his father and so he 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 wants to he wants to uh he wants to change his father you know he wants to uh help be a part of the process of the subject formation 
of his father. You know, uh, he wants to lead his father, you know, in terms of uh, not, not necessarily in terms of specific things that he might do, but in terms of who he is. Right. And out of love, yeah. because it's a, seeing yes. his father suffer the way that he does. It, it, he's moved by love to see his father uh, have a different life. There's this, uh, this passage from uh, 141. Uh, he came to visit me when I was in San Quentin. He was in his 40s then too, an age in men when they have grown full. I had decided to reach for my father, to force him with my revolutionary dialectic to question some of the mental barricades he'd thrown up to protect his body from what to him was an undefinable and omnipresent enemy, an enemy that would starve his body, expose it to the elements, chain his body, jail it, club it, rip it, hang it, electrify it, and poison gas it. I would have him understand that although he had saved his body, he had done so at a terrible cost to his mind. I felt that if I could superimpose the explosive doctrine of self-determination through people's government and revolutionary culture upon what remained of his mind, draw him out into the real world, isolate and identify his real enemies, if I could hurl him through Fanon's revolutionary catharsis, I would be serving him, the people, the historical obligation. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's something else, man. And what he's talking about is a, sort of a process of transformation that it's really hard for people to embrace. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really it's always been with us too, right? It's and partly, partly the reason his father was the man he was is because there were those voices out there that told him that the only thing he should do is do a good job and take care of his family the best he could and never, and never raise his voice to the way the system was oppressing. Right. Yeah. And we still get told the same thing. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. we, we still get told, uh, to pretty much stay in our place when things are not right, even though we see it's wrong. We're getting told on a collective basis that protesting is bad. You know, they want to, uh, they want to just have a sit by and watch people get killed, you know, every few weeks or almost murdered every few weeks in the presence of our collective children and not be angry and to just sit back and watch it and, and let our spirit be broken, but don't raise our voice. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, mm -hmm. You know, the sort of transformation that he was calling for is, it seems to me, is sort of at the most fundamental level of what we have to be fighting for. And that, you know, what we have to hope that we can engage people in is to think about their circumstance and how their circumstance got to be what it is and really think about what's the path forward. Uh, do we want to? You know, do we want to keep living in a world where police just shoot you because, you know, you're, you're uh, insolent to them, like you said earlier, him being insolent to his father, to act as if they're, they're your father and your punishment is uh, murder if you don't behave the way we think you should? 
do we want to keep living like that? I just, I can't see myself. That's not a life. You know, it's not a life at all. So. It's not. Yeah. And the other thing that I appreciate about him, though, is that he wasn't talking about uh, continually uh, engaging in sort of a criminal mentality either. I mean, there's that, I think you have that quote. I don't, you know, you have all the quotes I don't. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the quote about uh, changing from a criminal mentality to a revolutionary mentality. Uh, you read, yeah. I, I think you read that earlier. So yeah, just yeah. like this idea that that would be the goal, right? It, and then there was a quote I saw you uh, that I had seen on social media that uh, was about the idea that he didn't want to lie. He felt bad about the times that he did lie or cheat or steal because it made him so much like what he opposed. Or I forget. Yeah. Said, I, yeah. yeah. It's on uh, 118. He said, I am deeply sorry that I ever told a lie, stole anything, robbed and cheated at anything, mainly because it is so much like conforming to Western ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's deep, man. You just think, you know, that's deep because it's true, man. How does the West become the West? There is nothing about America that ever belonged to the people that rule America right now. Mm -hmm. Nothing, nothing, not the labor that produced its great wealth nor the resources that created the wealth. The land that the wealth came from is not theirs. The work that made that wealth was not theirs. You know, the the interest that they get off the money, the taxes that supports the government, it's not the rich people that support the government. It's all of us poor people that keep the state afloat. And yet the only thing that we get, you know, is either we get... uh in response to the civil right, we got attack dogs and, and water cannons. And then uh, we got COINTELPRO. And then after that, you know, in, in addition to Operation Chaos, we got the prison industrial complex. You know, we and, and even when we have uh, legitimate cases, the apparatus is such that they won't even investigate discriminatory practices. We have a president that engaged and was punished for discriminatory practices, him and his father. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it is. That's the Western way. That is the Western way entirely. You know, all over the world. I mean, every place that they've colonized, all over the world, that's what's happened. That's how the West becomes the West. Everything that sort of fits into, uh, America and Europe as being the quote unquote West. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I really being aware of what's going on with black people in prison. You know, even if we are not in prison, you know, right now is important to understanding what's coming for us black folks. I, I think um, I think uh, Boots Riley's uh, movie uh, "Sorry to Bother You." Yeah. Um, it, it really, I think, uh, in some ways, really is showing a way, one way, that the logic of the prison is being kind of, um, you know, put to work, or the logic of the prison slash sweatshop is being yeah. uh, put put to work, you know, in terms of uh, how they're getting people, this company called 
what's it called again? Is it called um, worry-free? Is that- yeah, yeah, that's it. And it's a call center on top of it. <laughs> like yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, the huge percentage of Americans that work in call centers. There. I didn't even realize there was that many people that worked in call centers, but that's like the sort of what's replaced the factory now. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it's and it's um it's run by a CEO played by Armin uh, Army Hammer, uh, whose name is Steve Lift. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, like he's talking about the you know the uh, you know the gig economy sector, you know, yeah, and sort of uh, how that you know could be turned into a kind of uh, you know basically what it looks like worry free is is you just you know, you just basically are incarcerated, but you're voluntarily incarcerated. Yeah, you and gave yourself up just so you could eat. Yeah. <laughs> you, get yeah. A place to, you get a place to stay, you get food to eat, you've got shelter. So, you know, you've yeah. heard, I've heard stories of people that said they preferred to be back in prison because they had three meals, and they had three squares in a, in a cot, you know. So yeah. it was, yeah. they, they had been institutionalized so much that it was easier to live in the prison than out. And I, you know, in a certain way, they've got this economy set up in a way where it's so difficult that some people may believe that's a relief compared to the stress they're under just to sort of maintain. It's really sad commentary. It is, it is. And, and we should talk about that movie at some point. I think that, that'll be uh, definitely a good one. A, a good one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting that it's uh, like it's, whole families that are being put into these things in, in the movie, um, you know, so it's, it's basically like if the logic of the prison is even engulfing the family. It's not that yeah. you have a family member that goes to prison. It's that the, the whole, the entire family is basically in prison. Yeah. I mean, there's, and it's true, right? You can, there's plenty of uh, people that have two, three, four kids in jail. Mm-hmm. They, well, they stay in jail, basically in prison at various points yeah. in time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I talk yeah. to working class people all the time when I ride the bus or wherever, when they're uh, talking about how their one son just got out and the other one has been in, but he'll be out at such and such a time. It's just normal now. That's That used to be extraordinary that there'd be two people in a family. And then it'd really be extraordinary that there'd be two in at the same time. Or even these films where they have intergenerational family members, like the uh, uh, that Netflix film uh, where they have the father and son both end up in the prison. Okay, all day, all yeah. day and a night. Yeah. So you look at art and entertainment, it sort of represents this new reality of black people, you know, fathers and sons in the same prison. And it's not, you know, and then there's also, you can see it on things like YouTube, stories about this happening. Uh, some some black men meet their father for the first time in the prison. You know, just think about that. It's, it's man. Yeah. You know, and then for so, so for black girls, they may never meet their father, you know, and then mothers and daughters in the same prison. It's becoming it's becoming regular, normalized within uh, poor black communities. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. you're right. It is that is the we're living under a paradigm of slavery because you know, 
Yeah, the prison is the only place that slavery is supposed to be legally available now. So when you yeah. talk about abolishing the prison, you're really talking about abolishing slavery. And then when you look at the disproportionate amount of black people and brown people in prison, then you're talking about abolishing racialized slavery. Yes. And and class based enslavement. Mm-hmm. So, because we know uh, upper middle class people don't go to prison for the majority of the crimes that people are going to prison for. People are all these people, all these millions of people aren't murderers. Right. They're in there because they had cocaine. They were addicted to drugs. They used drugs. They sold drugs. That's the vast majority. There's some that may have been engaged in property crimes, theft, and so forth. And it's not rich people that go out stealing things. Poor people steal things. You know, they're, you know, they're not the, uh, it's not a bunch of uh, characters from uh, Heat or something, that Robert De Niro film about the bank robbers. You know, these are, these are you know, and he didn't become, what he was probably, if you sort of look at that character, except because he had been in prison so many times and he got educated yeah. in prison, you know. Yeah. So this, mm-hmm. so it's not. This is not something that's happening to middle class or upper middle class people. It's not happening because they have drugs. They engage in all sorts of uh, embezzlement and property crimes, and they get a sort of a slap on the wrist, quote unquote, all the time. Which they don't, you know, if you do a property crime, you don't need to go to prison for that. You may need to do some sort of restitution or something, but it doesn't serve any purpose for someone who stole something to be in prison when then maybe they should be working to pay back what they stole to the people that they stole it from, you know. But but imprisoning them uh, doesn't, you know, that's not helping them or helping us or helping anybody. So really, if you look at it, the prison system is a sort of is basically a racial system of slavery and a class-based system of slavery. Slavery for everyone in there. Those people that do political crime and uh, sort of major corporate crime, they they don't spend time in prison. You know, I mean, probably some of the people that spent the most time in prison. Uh, after Watergate, they weren't in there for a lie. They spent maybe 10 years at the most. And look mm-hmm. at what they were engaged in. They orchestrated assassinations and everything else. Indirectly, mm-hmm. yet, yet still, that's what they were responsible for. Mm-hmm. You know, They took over a government, basically, and they ended up spending uh, you know, a relatively short amount of time for the crimes that they committed. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Man. And I'm thinking of uh, children in cages and, and families, you know. Their crime was crossing crossing the border was their crime. Yeah. 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 And it's like, you know, there's all kinds of, we, yeah, we got to talk about international stuff because it it's so perverse that you know, America causes, the United States causes so much harm in other countries through its imperialist foreign policy. And then it denies entrance of the refugees created by the conflicts it caused. 
you know, that no different you know, than not, in the ghetto. They do the yeah. same thing on an international level that they do to people in ghettos. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's it's part it's part of this sort of sadistic drive that affects uh, black people in the prison. It also affects you know uh, brown people, many of whom are indigenous people from you know Central America, you know uh, Middle East, uh, things like that. You know, but also uh, you know. Uh, with those brown people through immigration and things like that. Also, there are black people who are immigrants who are thought of even less, at least in the United right. States. You know, the, the sort of uh, stereotypical immigrant is, you know, um, is a brown, you know, person right. who looks, they would call him a Mexican or call her a Mexican, you know, things like that, even though they come oftentimes from Central America, even from South America. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and even there, you know, MS-13 uh, in El Salvador, at least, you know, which, you know, uh, is one of the gangs, it was actually a gang that was created in the United States, you know, so right. like, another and way part, that, that and it, partly you know, fueled by the uh, U.S. intervention in El Salvador, too. I mean, yes. the violence that was going on in the U.S., uh, during the U.S.'s role in those death squads in El Salvador helped fuel the gang uh, membership in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. A country, an empire that causes so much harm all over the world, um, but also denies people the ability to move from where they are being harmed. A, a it's sadistic. It's, a, it's just a fundamentally sadistic, uh, you know, uh, structure, you know, but also what it does is it makes the entire world be on lockdown. Right. The world is a ghetto because what they do in the ghetto, when you look at what happens to the ghettos that people that try to, you try to do something legitimate outside of your space, there's a sort of a code of where black people belong and where they don't. And, and then, uh, what ends up happening is it's almost impossible to do business outside of what's considered your appropriate space. You know, there's a, a few of you can, but you can't have a mass of people out there doing that. So you keep people concentrated in a place that locks them in to poverty and all of the attendant parts of a culture that's, uh, you know, forced into confinement and you get what you get. You know, you end up with violence because you have police instigating violence between people that live, you know, two and three blocks apart. You have the state, you know, being responsible for breaking up political organizations that were meant to unite people. They intentionally come in and break it up because they don't want the state destabilized. And then as a further means to uh, keep the apparatus in place they just increasingly expand the prison and to make sure that anybody that might be uh have a tendency to uh move and behave out of line they just create all sorts of laws that can just constantly catch people and have them locked up forever you know so and they and they're showing very little interest in addressing or reforming it I mean, the one of the key sort of examples for a long time 
was the disparity between crack cocaine and regular powder cocaine. They're both cocaine, but for one, you got 15 times, I believe, more uh, punishment than the other. You know, you, uh, yeah. I forget that. It used to be 100 times. Oh, thank you. That's, yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a 100 to 1 disparity between the, the, yeah. the, the punishment for uh, crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. That you were punished 100 times more harshly, you know. Yeah. And, but not yet. And, yeah, and crack is a derivative of the real thing, which was the cocaine. George Jackson was really uh, an important figure, which gave rise to what's called Black August now. Gave rise to uh, a lot of uh, really politicized people for that generation. And it took a long time, but, you know, by the... Uh, late 1990s you saw the rise of things like critical resistance but now you hear uh sort of a normal discussion about mass incarceration so it is in the public consciousness and it was due in large part to the things that he did you know the just the but the difference was that he was talking about abolishing the entire system which really would be an abolition of slavery and so he's in a he's in a, a stream of people who have been calling for the abolition of slavery since black people got to America. 